0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market. A New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com.
0: This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: And welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm Kim Kessler with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA Law School, and we are broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me today in the studio as co-host is Jenna Leute. Hi, Jenna. Hi. Sorry, I think that was a little loud there. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully you're okay. Um, So let's get started. Uh, Today we have a great topic that I think comes up around the family table a lot and in reading newspapers a lot. We are gonna focus on the questions of if it's possible to eat a nutritious and healthy diet on a budget, is healthy food too expensive or too cheap? These are the questions that have sometimes created fault lines among food advocates with some saying that Americans need to spend more of their income on food and others worried about those who can't currently afford enough good food to eat. We have two experts here to talk with us about these questions. I'd like to welcome Dr. Marlene Schwartz. She's the director for the Red Center of Food Policy and Obesity. Hi, Marlene.
3: Hi there. Thanks for having me.
2: Very glad to have you on. And we're also joined by Park Wildy, who is a food economist at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. And he also blogs at U.S. Food Policy. Hi, Park.
4: Hi. Glad to talk to you today.
2: So I want to get started with, um, I guess, what the research tells us. There's a lot of assumptions in this area and primarily the pre- prevailing idea that eating healthy is a really expensive thing to do. So what... Um, What does some of the recent research conducted by the USDA tell us about that question, Park?
4: Well, I, I think USDA economists tend to be optimistic on this question, to feel that although not all healthy food is affordable, that there tend to be options available among the offerings in the supermarket that can be both healthy and priced at a reasonable price point.
1: And by healthy, Park, should we start by unpacking that? What what do we mean by by healthy food in some of these studies? Can you give some examples?
4: Right. And it's a good question because it's difficult. Everybody's got a different view about what is healthy. And depending on how you define what type of food you are seeking to price, you may find very different answers about whether it seems expensive or inexpensive. But if we take just the question of whether it's possible to afford fruits and vegetables, A lot of fruits and vegetables are high-priced. You think, for example, uh, berries or raspberries. But the fruits and vegetables that people consume most, such as apples or bananas or oranges, um, can be gotten in the supermarket at more reasonable prices. And when you look at the averages, as the USDA economists do, they tend to find that you can fit fruits and vegetables even within the food stamp budget.
2: So one thing that emerged in this conversation, I think, uh, going back years ago, this question was the idea of calories and how much calories could you buy for a dollar. And you'd see the picture of potato chips and you can get a thousand calories for 10 cents or, you know, 50 cents and the pile of strawberries. And you can only get 60 calories for five dollars and that being really compelling to people. So the USDA, one thing that that their research emphasized was a lot of this goes to how you measure it. Um, Is that something that you think needs to be included in the discussion?
4: It's true. In fact, um, it's another example of how you pose the question kind of determines in part what what answer you're going to get. One of the ways that people look at the cost of healthy and unhealthy food is to look at the cost per calorie, meaning that if something costs more for each calorie you you get, it seems more expensive. But if you think about why do we eat food, we partly eat food for calories, but we partly eat food for a mix of other good things that we get, Um, the taste, the fiber, the micronutrients. And so if you take fruits and vegetables, they sometimes look like a really bad deal on a cost per calorie basis, because you think about raspberries, right? There's just not that much calories in them. But if you look at how much they cost for the other good things you get, like per unit of fiber or per unit of healthy micronutrients, um, they come out looking like a much better deal.
1: Okay. Are, I mean, Park, are, are all calories created equal?
4: Um, now, th- that also is a good complicated question. The dietary guidelines includes messages that focus both on calorie balance, you know, the idea that everything de- for healthy weight depends on what, what amount you eat, but it also focuses on what food groups we eat, whether we eat a, a diet health with high in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, things like that. So in, in in that sense I think it's better not to think of a calorie as just a calorie.
1: And and Marlene, given given what the research tells us, um, what 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 are your thoughts on, on whether or not it's possible to
3: eat healthy on a limited budget based on your experiences? I do think that it's possible to eat healthy on a limited diet. I mean a limited budget, but I think the other variable that's really important to include is time because i do think if you are trying to save money you're probably going to do things like you know buy you know rice or oats or you know raw fruits and vegetables and you're going to need to do something in order to prepare those foods to eat and i think that that's where it gets really tricky so I, you can end up um spending more money getting something that can be you know prepared super quickly some sort of frozen meal or something like that um, but that won't be as healthy. So there's the sort of time issue. There's also the knowledge of how to prepare the foods, and knowing, you know, kind of what to do and what ingredients you need in order to make it taste good. And I think where people sometimes get in trouble is when they're looking to get food really quickly that they don't have to prepare and that they know that their children will like and that can often look really inexpensive because you can get it fast and, you know, your kids will like it even if it's something that's not so healthy like, you know, fast food or some sort of frozen meal.
2: So even though we have, we're have we talking about this issue as an area that's challenging for many and uh, across the spectrum, we we actually have overall pretty cheap food here in our country and we've had... I think, for a long time, a a national policy that has been supportive of making food cheaper. Is that a correct characterization of our history here, Park, would you say?
4: You know, um, it it is often said that the U.S. has a cheap food policy. Um, My agricultural economist colleagues look at things a little differently. There, There are some farm subsidy programs that have the effect of pushing down prices of food, but there's many other things that we do that keep food prices high. Think, for example, of tariffs that protect our farmers from imported dairy products or imported sugar. Or think about um, checkoff programs, you know, that advertise encouraging us to eat more beef or more pork. Um, All of these have the tendency to increase the price that consumers face, among other things, by increasing consumer demand for food. So I I would think of Farm policy is a mix on prices. Um, The main thing that's driven prices down even more than policy is just this 100-year history of technological change in the U.S. food system. So if you think about the change from small farms to larger farms, from small equipment to immense harvesters and um, trucking food from place to place, um, it's surprising how different the way we get our food is from the way it was just a few decades ago.
1: But overall, would you agree that it is still, I mean, if, if broadly speaking, would you agree that it is still, you know, for the first time, maybe in history, we're finding pork at like $2 a pound or, you know, something crazy cheap along those lines. You can walk into the grocery store and buy an apple for 50 cents. Yeah. And people spend, yeah. Sorry, go on.
4: I, no, I think because, I think, you know, there's good things and bad things about these changes. You think about the industrialization of the food system. It has a number of things that raise alarms for people, like what is the effect on animal welfare? What is the effect mm-hmm. on small farmers? Um, what is the effect on um, what antibiotics are used in our food production system? But the one thing it does do is it gives us the food at quite a price point, right? So it's just astonishing uh, as you as you stand there in the supermarket looking at the price of pork that's on sale, right. you find yourself wondering, how is it possible to get this to the supermarket at that price per pound?
2: And so this is where many people think that that's a problem because we're not seeing the true cost of food and the true cost of labor and the environmental cost going into some of those um, expenses. And, and you look worldwide and see that Americans are spending, on average, less money than Other countries are spending on their food. But what I found was interesting in looking through some of the information that our guests had shared for the show was that that's not actually true at the lowest levels of income. People are spending a really high portion of their income on food, which I think comes back to the question of, are there differences between low income and high income in people's purchasing habits and what they're able to buy? Um, And Marlene, can you weigh in on that?
3: Sure. So we did a recent review of the literature looking at, um, at nutrition by people who participate in SNAP, which is food stamp program, people who are similarly low income but don't participate, and then people who are higher income. And, you know, it again, it depends on the way you're looking at it. If you're looking at just calories, um, we don't have a problem, at least according to what we found, you know, here in the United States with people not getting enough calories. So it seemed that both the SNAP eligible and the people on SNAP were able to get adequate calories, um, you know, compared to the, to the higher income people and certainly adequate calories compared to what, uh, you know, you would recommend. But when you start to break it down and look at the nutritional quality of what they're eating, that's when we started to see the differences. And, you know, it's a a hard thing to study, and the results are often mixed. But what we basically found was that the dietary quality was lower among the lower-income people. So both the SNAP participants and, in some cases, the non-SNAP participants seem to be not having, uh, you know, as many fruits and vegetables, having more sugary drinks and things like that. And so that's where, you know, you can argue that it's harder to eat a healthy diet if you're low-income. Because based on what you're
1: finding, the SNAP recipients in particular are eating compared to those people in a higher income group.
3: Right, right. So there weren't huge difference between the low income people who participate in SNAP versus those who didn't. Um, it you know it seemed they tended to look more similar overall, although some studies did find some differences. But it, in general, the biggest differences were with the higher income
1: family. I'm just curious. Can you uh, explain why you did did that control group um, of between low-income participants and those who are SNAP eligible? Those are who are participating and not participating. Uh, and, well, yeah.
3: in, a, in a yeah, in a perfect study, you would randomly assign people <laughs> to either have SNAP benefits or not, but that's not ethical. And so, it, it's the best you can really do to have a control group because otherwise, you're you know you're not really looking at the effect of the SNAP program. You're looking just income. But the other problem, though, is that people choose to participate in SNAP or not. And there may be other very important variables that are related to this that are driving that choice to participate or not. So even if if we did find that, let's say, SNAP participants um, had a worse diet than equally low-income non-participants, you could never say it was because of the SNAP program, because it could be that they're different in the first place, and the ones that choose not to participate maybe have other resources or, you know, other things going on, so that's why they're able to pass up that um, entitlement.
2: So in terms of takeaways from that, is that something that's saying SNAP, the SNAP program is working as intended, but the goals need to become more refined? Is that something that's saying SNAP is not really working because the goal is to bridge the gap and make sure that people are getting adequate nutrition? I mean, what, how do you um, summarize, or what does it mean for you in terms of the implications for the program, Marlene? Sure.
3: I would say the program is absolutely working in terms of keeping people from starving. And so it, you know, it is giving people resources that they're able to use in order to get enough food to survive. So in that way, it's completely successful. That's, that seems like a pretty I, low
1: bar, though. <laughs>
3: I well, so you're talking, I mean, you're talking about international comparisons. I mean, right. there are other countries where that's not the case. Right. So I don't think it's sort of a small thing that in the United States we don't, have the problem like you have in some other countries.
1: Well, we're, I mean, but compared I to other think, developed countries, maybe, I'd be curious to know. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah,
3: I mean, that's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting question. But I think that, you know, the the differences, though, in diet weren't huge. I mean, they were statistically significant, but they weren't, you know, like, whopping huge differences. They They were more subtle, and they tended to mostly be in those, you know, sort of sugary drink you know, sweet dessert category, and then the things that we do think of as being more expensive, like um, fruits and vegetables. So I think that the SNAP program could be improved if there were ways to really uh, have it make economic sense for people to use their dollars for the most nutritious products.
2: And the USDA study that was from this year also found very little difference between higher between more expensive diets and less expensive diets in terms of their nutritional profiles. But on the question of poverty, we know that SNAP is also very effective in helping people stay out of poverty. And, uh, Park, I know you've, you've talked about the relationship between poverty and what these, our nutrition assistance programs can do. What's your take on Marlene's study and, and the more generally, SNAP?
4: Right. No, Mar- Marlene makes a number of good points. I think it's always important not to put differences between SNAP and other people first. First thing to note is that Americans as a whole are not e- eating super healthy diets. Right, yeah. um, but once you've got that point out of the way and then you do look at differences, uh, you do notice that um, SNAP participants are eating slightly less healthy diets on average even than low-income non-participants. And it gets people brainstorming about, well, I wonder, as long as we're spending these billions of dollars on the nation's most important nutrition assistance and anti-hunger program, could it do somewhat better? And it's a delicate question because, among other things, it tends to be divisive between the program's long-standing supporters in the public health nutrition community and in the anti-hunger community. People have different views on this question. Um, But a good consensus is that at at the very least, it's worthwhile to put some effort into experimenting with incentives for healthy fruit and vegetable consumption. And there's a lot of interesting things that USDA is doing on that. I I worked on a pilot called the Healthy Incentives Pilot where they randomly assigned people to get or not get a 30% benefits back incentive on their fruit and vegetable purchases. And it made a difference. In, it made a small but notable difference in, in how much fruits and vegetables people, people consume.
2: So we want to take a short break and then come back and talk more about how, else, how we can work on this problem going forward.
1: We're back on Eating Matters with Park Wilde and Marlene Schwartz talking about whether or not it's possible to eat healthfully on a limited budget. Um, Park, uh, right before the break, you had referenced that um, tweaking SNAP could be divisive. Um, and I, I do think that it's commonly, you know, common knowledge that this program, the SNAP program can be e- easily politicized. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about why that could be and why there isn't just a general kind of consensus across the board that SNAP participants really deserve to be eating nutritious, healthy food. And, and that is the intent of the program, to be able to provide those opportunities.
3: Well,
4: as, as, as you noted, the, the motivation for piloting some policies that would point SNAP in the direction of particularly healthful pur- purchases is to help people's nutrition, give people a chance to afford particularly healthy products like fruits and vegetables. And the, the concern, especially from people in the anti-hunger community, is that this would be patronizing that it might even be so stigmatizing that it would prevent some eligible people from getting the benefits that they need to prevent hunger in their families. And if that that were the outcome, you can see why that that would be a disaster. And um, I think that as people do um, innovate in this area, for example, there's these large food insecurity nutrition incentive projects that promote fruits and vegetables through farmer's markets. As people innovate, I think they need to pay attention to stigma and to ask SNAP participants themselves, what was your opinion of this? Um, and not just to make presumptions in advance.
2: What do you think are good ways to do that? Is that polls? I,
4: oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so uh, surveys, survey responses from SNAP participants tend to be interesting because they don't always match with what you'd expect. Um, there's uh, colleagues at Harvard um, asked SNAP participants what, what they would think even if you um, restricted sugar-sweetened beverages. And th- this is one of the policy proposals that raises the m- most alarm, uh, the sense that it might stigmatize
3: the program. Oh, we know. And yet,
4: for, <laughs> for, for more than half of SNAP participants, it um, for more than half of SNAP participants, they, they th- thought this might be a good idea. Huh.
2: So what are the things that, uh, beyond cost, create obstacles to a healthy diet. Marlene. Yeah.
1: Marlene, you had mentioned some things like time and concern that kids won't want to eat, you know, healthier food, for instance. Um, can can, you talk a little bit more about some of those barriers and how to maybe overcome how, how it could be possible to overcome them?
3: Sure. Yeah. I do think, um, that it, you know, if you're going to prepare healthy food in a, you know, in an inexpensive way using, you know, like ingredients, but I think that um, you definitely need the time, you need the knowledge. Um, and another thing I've, I've heard from people is that you're also going to be worried, if you have really limited income, you're going to be worried trying something new at the risk that your child won't eat it. And so I think one of the, you know, tricky parts is trying to, you know, convince parents, let's say, to have more fruits and vegetables and to serve those to their children But, you know, kids can sometimes be really picky and you certainly wouldn't want to spend what, you know, feels to you like a lot of money on uh, fruit or vegetable and have your child refuse to eat it. So I think there's a sort of a um, protective impulse to stick with the foods that you know your kids are going to eat if you have limited funds.
1: It seems like we as a culture can tend to get obsessed with, you know, this idea that we need to have like a certain number of calories in a day and 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 park i'd asked you earlier about you know are all calories created equally and and we know that no they're not there are obviously some foods that are much more nutritive than others but yet i I feel like you know we as a society just tend like the default thinking is we need to get like enough enough calories in a day and i I don't know i mean how you fight that but um or if you how you you work to change that but um i don't know if any of you if, if either of you have any thoughts on that kind of broad concept
3: I think the thing about nutrition that's really complicated is it's not a linear thing. (laughs) So it's just, you know, it's not that easy to just, you know, sort of put 100 foods in a row and decide, you know, which is the least nutritious and which is the most nutritious because it is so complicated. And so I I agree with you. And changing. I guess the science is changing. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, But I think what we end up doing is we focus on calories because calories, at least, it's a linear thing. (laughs) You can say, you know, you had more or you had less. Um, you know, it's a really good question. I mean, it definitely, I think, would be better if people really focused on food groups, um, even more than nutrients. Like, you know, nobody thinks, oh, I need to go to the grocery store and get it, some zinc. Magnesium, notably, yeah. Yeah, so to have people <laughs> just focus on, you know, grains and dairy and fruits and vegetables and protein and things like that. I think that would help at least um, shift our, our focus to something you can see on your plate as opposed to these more abstract ideas.
2: Do you think that the perception that healthy food is expensive is greater than the reality?
3: Um, that's a really interesting question. I, I was trying to think of, like, some examples of where you really feel like healthy food is more expensive. And I so I was once at an airport, and I went to a Starbucks to get a snack. And, you know, they have these, like, various you know brownies and bars and things like that and they had a fruit cup mm-hmm. and I went to buy the fruit cup and the woman actually this was in New York and the woman at the register actually said to me do you know how expensive that is <laughs> because it was easily 3 times as much as yeah. probably any of the other options so I do think in some situations it you know especially a place where shelf stability is is important the, the healthier thing if it 's not shelf stable is definitely going to be more expensive I think that but I think when you're talking about a grocery store it's it's a different story
2: and that I think goes to two things that that come up here when one is kind of what are our social cues about what 's expensive and how do we collectively think about that and then second, the trends towards eating away from home, which is true for everyone and probably even more true for low income people, maybe not um, but certainly a huge factor for low-income people and how that cuts in terms of stretching budget dollars and trying to eat healthy. Um, do you have thoughts on how any of our federal policies can help bridge the gap between low and high income there? Park I, I,
4: I, think, I think that Marlene mentioned something important, which is that different foods that are considered healthy may have very different price points, depending on what the setting is and she mentioned um, if you're in a place where all the food has to be shelf stable, like in an airport, then the food that's healthier may be substantially more expensive because it's hard to get the healthy food to that setting. Another thing I noticed is that food that's marketed as health food is always more expensive than other food. So right. if, you, if you've got a snack bar, bar- that's promising you that it's a miracle and it's going to extend your life, it's probably got a higher price point than other snack foods available to you. Um, but if you actually look at the foods that really are healthy and are just commodities, like, like apples, um, apples are very healthy and yet no, no, nobody's promising you that they're made of magic. And, and their price tends to be more reasonable. Um, and so it, it, it really depends. As for things that the government can do, Um, I think the combination of nutrition assistance programs, including a broad anti-hunger program like SNAP, which isn't too prescriptive. It doesn't tell people too much what to eat. And then there's also more targeted programs like WIC, which have a narrower list of particularly healthy foods that the mothers, infants, and children who participate in this program can buy. And then you've got broader anti-poverty efforts. I think the real solution in the long run isn't just government programs, nor is it just food banks and food pantries, even though each of these organizations do terrific work. But in the long run, I think we need to recover our sense of optimism that um, a country as prosperous as the United States can do something about poverty in the first place, and as people get more income and get more um, ho- hope, hope and uh, start to be able to focus on longer-term Prospects better. They they may um, be able to eat more healthy, also.
2: And I think you hear more. I think you you hear that being invoked across the spectrum more, and particularly among people who work in food and talking about wages as such a core element and talking about poverty as a root cause. So I want to just ask one last question before we wrap it up, and that's about cheap food, which is this um, word pairing we hear so much. So is cheap food something that? we should be calling for?
4: I, 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 as an economist, economists always want things to have the right price. And they get nervous when people say, oh, the price is always too high or always too low. I know that makes boring radio, but in <laughs> fact, the right price is probably somewhere in the middle because the farmers need to earn a good living. Consumers need a decent price. And uh, and uh, and so uh, it's not so much cheap, but uh, rightly priced food that that I wish for most.
1: That seems like something that we need to. I, I feel like there's a general consensus that food should be cheaper and cheaper. So it seems like
2: uh, it must be who you're talking to because I feel like there's a, a more more people saying food should be more and more expensive. <laughs> um, but that it's hard to come up with something that's more appealing sounding than well. I, I just food.
1: I just think in general people don't really prioritize spending money on food i mean people maybe who I, who I, who i know right i think it's like a an afterthought or um you know it's it's just not doesn't seem to be like as much of a priority and i realize that i i am probably the anomaly i spend way too much money on food if that's possible. But um, I do, I do think there's this general perception that like we deserve in this country. Like, you know, it's our inherent right to cheap food. And I don't know if that's because there's a huge disconnect between how it was made or what, but um, I don't know. I would like to change that, per, that cultural perspective a little bit.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think that we don't really value food that much, you know, that we do focus a lot on just, you know, the biggest size for the smallest amount right. of money. And, you know, the whole all you can eat buffet and, um, you know, sort of, you know, supersizing and all of that sort of thing. I, I would like to see Americans feel more, um, you know, just sort of value the food, especially thinking about what was the real cost of this food. I mean, right. this food had to grow and people had to pick it. And, Then it had to be shipped. And, you know, I think if people had more of an appreciation for that, which I think is the whole idea of, you know, the more local food and knowing where your food comes from, I think that that people would feel better about spending more on something because they would see it as more valuable. But I think it's like other parts of our society, you know, whether it's, you know, clothing or toys or, you know, there's other places where we just want things to be really cheap, but then we sort of don't care about it very much. And I think that is different than other cultures.
1: Right. So, I mean, so how do you kind of how do you fix that? How do you or how do you work to change that? It doesn't seem something that, you know, broadly speaking, for the entire American public would be so, you know, and, you know, ripe for a policy intervention.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're really talking about a cultural change. I I remember Alice Waters once saying, if you are what you you eat, we're, you know, cheap, fast, and easy. (laughs) And, you know, you want to, you do, I think it's happening in in some parts of our society where people are starting to care more about the food and value it more. But it's it's definitely going to be hardest among the people with the least resources.
2: I want to thank you both so much for joining. That's our guest today, Marlene Schwartz and Park Wild. We're going to let you have the last word.
3: I also think
4: that um, the, the mix of innovation currently going on with support from nutrition assistance programs for low-income consumers and with people working on farmers markets and local food and supporting farmers uh, is, 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 is exciting. And I look forward to sort of hearing what, what happens next. Uh, glad, glad to talk to you about these important things. Absolutely. Issues. Thank Wonderful. So
2: so, and my excuse is that I have a fever so I'm feverish right now <laughs> I'm too loud and I'm all over the place with my pronunciations so thank you so much to both of you uh, I want to thank our show co-producer and my co-host today Jenna Liute and our intern is Austin Brunyarski show music by Tim Archer thanks to our sponsors and our show engineer Liz Smith The show is available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher please find us on Twitter I'm Kim Kessler and thanks for listening